So yeah, great to be here. This is the fourth week on this Apostles' Creed. Um, Hopefully you've been able to catch some of the others. Um, The Apostles' Creed outlines the foundation and the fundamentals of what all Christians believe, of every different denomination. Because I'm sure we're all aware that there are many things that different denominations and different churches disagree on. They have different views on. And sometimes that can be a bit confusing. Or even lead to an impression of there's, there's just this great disunity in the church. Um, where the differences are magnified rather than what unites us. And actually what unites us, that foundation, is what allows for all those different beliefs. It's what allows for the different expressions of Christianity that you see. And that's actually a great, a great strength, the core of what all Christians believe. And um, I, I find it helpful to think of it in this way. Last time I talked about a Jenga tower. Let me give you a different one. So, some doctrines and some beliefs, some teachings are written in pencil, and some are written in ink, and some are written in blood. Okay, So if something's written in pencil, it's actually really quite easy to rub it out and change it, and it doesn't really make an awful lot of difference, and some beliefs are like that. But there are some which are written in ink, and um, so that would be a a strongly held belief, a, a belief that you're very committed to, but not to the extent that you would say that somebody who differs from you on that particular belief is therefore not a Christian. There are, there are things that we as a church hold very strongly in beliefs that we're committed to that other churches would have a different view on. But they're Christians and we're Christians. It doesn't mean anything. It just means, well, we believe that this is the way that we want to uh, live out the Christian faith. But then there are some beliefs that are written in blood where you know, those are the things that you die for and that people have died for in history. If you try to change or remove any of them, you don't have Christianity anymore. These are the doctrines upon which Christianity stands or falls, and that's what we have in the creed. And, um, and you know, actually, I think problems arise in the, in the church universal, in the holy Catholic church. Problems arise, disunity arises when people try to take beliefs that are written in pencil or ink and portray them as if they're written in blood. This is the thing you have to believe. That brings big problems. So we've looked at God as Father, we've looked at God as Creator, then last time it was Jesus as Christ, Son, and Lord, part of the Trinity, this mysterious Trinity. Um, Hopefully, if you were were there for that, you you got a glimpse, at least a glimpse, of something of the majesty of Jesus, how awesome he is in the truest sense of the word, how awesome he is, that he is the word from John chapter 1, the word, the Greek word is the logos, the one who is eternal. Uh, the eternal Son of God, through whom all things were made, and who upholds and sustains the universe by his word of power. And that he is our Lord. And all of that entails. He's prophet, priest, and king. He's our Lord. And so we willingly and gladly submit to his rule in our lives. But the creed now shifts from a general confession of faith in Christ to some of the key historical aspects of his life and work. Um, upon which our salvation depends. So key things uh, like the cross and his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. But the first of those key historical events is the virgin birth. And so the line in the creed is, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, that's what I spoke about last time, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And there are three main directions I want to approach this from this morning. First, is it real? Is, is the virgin birth real? Second, why does it matter? And then third, what is your response? So is it real? Why does it matter? 
What is your response? So let's have a look at what Scripture says. I'm going to read from a couple of passages, both of which I'm sure are very familiar to you, one of which you'll hear read a lot at Christmas time. So from Luke chapter 1 and also from John chapter 1. Words will be on the screen behind me. So Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. And then in John chapter 1, we get a glimpse of what's behind this. Who this baby is. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then verse 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we can see from Scripture what the claim is. The claim is that the eternal Son of God, the one who has existed eternally as part of the Trinity, became a man, became, was born as a baby, but not just an ordinary birth. He was born to a virgin. That's the claim. So the question is, is it real? Is the virgin birth real? Because virgin birth is clearly not an everyday occurrence. Um, you could say the same of resurrection of the dead uh, or anything which is deemed to be a miraculous event. It's called miraculous because it's not in the normal, natural order of things, like water doesn't generally just turn into wine by itself. And food doesn't generally multiply as you, as you give it out. It's, it's miraculous. And so there would be people who would say, they would call themselves naturalists, not naturists. That is different. And you don't need to Google it either. Naturalists for whom the physical and observable, the, the, the physical matter that we have, that's all there is. That, and the physical and observable laws that govern that is all there is. Everything that's natural as opposed to supernatural. And so, who, therefore, those people would rule out the possibility of any miracle, anything that is, that is said to be uh, miraculous, um, anything that goes outside those natural laws. But it does seem that of all the miracles documented in the Bible, the virgin birth attracts the most skepticism and even the most contempt. You know, you seriously believe that? I mean, what's wrong with you? Are you a child or something? What? It's quite clearly utter nonsense. And even in some church circles, okay, so here's a quote from an Episcopalian bishop called John Spong, who says, in time, the virgin birth account will join Adam and Eve and the story of cosmic ascension 
as clearly recognized mythical elements in our faith tradition whose purpose was not to describe a literal event. Wow. Now, going by you know, doctrines written in pencil, ink, and blood, that's a heretical statement for a Christian to make. It's heretical because it's, it, the virgin birth is explicitly stated in the creed, which is based on scripture. It's a Christian doctrine that is written in blood that you don't get to just try and soften or explain away. So why? Why the particular skepticism and contempt? I think there are lots of reasons. One reason would be, for some people, they just find the whole idea a bit distasteful. God and uh, a womb. And that God being involved, how does that work? There's something about it which people don't like. It feels all a bit distasteful, as if God is, it's all a bit messy, you know? But actually, I think the main reason for this is, it, it comes down to chronological snobbery. Uh, what I mean by that, it, it's the kind of thing they believe then, of course, virgin birth, resurrection from the dead, but we are wise. We are enlightened now. I mean, you hear this all the time in other contexts, don't you? Whenever you hear the phrase used, in this day and age, in this day and age, it's the most unbelievably arrogant thing to say. We have arrived at the moment in history where we know it all, we know everything. It's the 21st century. It's 2019, for goodness sake. You surely don't still believe that. You surely don't hold that opinion still in this day and age. As if 2019, the fact that it's 2019, is the argument clincher. We know everything now. We're enlightened. We have modern science. Of course people believed in things then, like virgin birth and resurrection from the dead. We know it's all very silly. But of course they would believe it because they were stupid. They were uneducated. They were gullible. They would just believe anything they were told. Virgin birth, yay, wow, a great idea. They didn't have modern science. But it doesn't take modern science to say that people don't generally rise from the dead and that virgins don't generally give birth to babies. They did know that. They were aware of that before. I mean, have you ever considered how the conversation between Mary and Joseph went? Joseph, I don't know how to say this, but it seems that I'm pregnant. What? Who? Who? Who was it? Well, the Holy Spirit. Right. I mean, how is Joseph going to respond? He's going to say, oh, okay, great. That's exciting news, isn't it? Wow. Go God. Very good. No, I don't think that would have been the response. We know it wasn't his response. His response would have been more along the lines of, Mary, I can't believe, I can't believe you've betrayed me like this, and, and you're lying about it. Stop lying. Who, just tell me who did this to you. See, let me get this straight. You're telling me you're pregnant, but you've still never slept with anybody. You're still a virgin. Do me a favor. Take me for a fool. We know from Matthew's gospel that Joseph was planning to divorce Mary. He was planning to break off the engagement, break off the betrothal, because this was utterly scandalous. It was, he would have seen it as a betrayal. Joseph's response was not of unquestioning, gullible acceptance of the idea of a virgin birth. It took God speaking to him very specifically for him to accept it and believe it. So the idea of a virgin birth was no more credible or plausible then than it is now. And yet, it is what the Bible clearly and unashamedly teaches. Not just in the Gospels either, but when you piece together Old Testament prophecy with other parts of the New Testament, it clearly teaches this as an essential part of the story, that this is about the incarnation of God, the Word, the Logos, becoming flesh. 
And as I said a couple of weeks ago, there was a lot of debate and a lot of arguments in the early church trying to explain Jesus, trying to rationalize and define Jesus. You know, is he God? How can he be God when he was born? He's human, so he can't be God. No, no, but he is God. Yeah, but if he was born and if he was conceived, then he must have been created, right? No, no, he's the eternal son of God. That's not the moment he became the eternal son of God. He eternally has been the son of God. Well, then does he have a split personality? Does he have two personalities? What? No, no, he's one person. One person. Well, is he, is he just God pretending to be human, masquerading as a human, or is he, is he a human pretending to be God? All of these were genuine thoughts that were put out there and ideas that were discussed. How do we reconcile the fact he was born to a human mother and therefore is human and was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit and therefore is divine? How do you put that together in one person? How does that work? And the conclusion of the early church, the early church fathers, was finally fully defined at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. That was more, just over 100 years later than the Nicene Creed, which I mentioned last time, which was an elaboration of the Apostles' Creed, which is what we're reading out. Each time, giving a bit more detail, giving a bit more definition to avoid heresy, to avoid wrong thoughts, wrong belief about Jesus and about God. And the conclusion that they reached, and really it's the conclusion that was forced on them, because it's the conclusion that the evidence compelled them to draw, is that Jesus was both God and human. Both God and man. Truly, fully divine, and truly and fully human. The eternal Son of God that I spoke about uh, a couple of weeks ago, and also a man. 100% God, 100% man at the same time. And I know the math doesn't really work, does it? 100% God, 100% man, but at the same time, not flitting between two things like Clark Kent and Superman. Both, at the same time, two natures united in the one person of Christ. They call it the hypostatic union, for those who are interested in this kind of thing. But the point is, whether we understand it or not, and we don't, the conclusion is and has to be that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. That's who he is. Like I said about the Trinity last time, if God is God, as we would define God, if God is God, of course it's a mystery. Of course I don't get it. Of course I don't understand everything. If I could, he wouldn't be God. If God is the one who created the, the, the physical world and the laws of nature that we can observe, then of course he can work outside them. If God is God, of course a miraculous birth is possible. Acts 17, the Apostle Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. In other words, he's not the God of my understanding, and he's not the God of your understanding. He doesn't live in a temple that I can construct for him, or a box that I can fit him in. Why would he? Why would the God of the universe... The God of space and time who lives beyond space and time. Why would he be limited or beholden to the opinions of a small group of people living today who think they're terribly wise? Why would he be limited to the limits of a finite human mind and what we can grasp? It says in Luke chapter 1, nothing is impossible with God because he's God. So the virgin birth is clearly taught in the Bible as a historical event and a historically attested to event and something that is essential to our salvation. Okay, so why does it matter? Why is it important? Why is it there in the creed? 
Why is this a doctrine that is written in blood? Why does it matter that Jesus is fully God and fully man? So last time I focused on the importance of the fact that he's fully God. Because only God could possibly reconcile us to God. Only an infinite God could possibly bear the penalty for the sin of the whole world. No finite creature could ever do that. That's why it's important that he is fully God. But what about this thing that he's also fully man? Which is the result of being born to a human woman. Why is that important? Well, there are loads of reasons. And so let me just give a few very quick examples before getting to the main point that I want to make. So first quick example is to do with the value this puts on creation. You know, the fact of being created in the first place, rather than just being a random accident, already puts great dignity and value on you. That's what Stuart spoke about a few weeks ago when he spoke about God as creator. It already puts great value and dignity on you that you are created by God. But how much more value does it place on you and on creation that God himself becomes part of his creation? He becomes a creature in order to rescue his creation. You know, that's why the world, the creation, your body, and what you do with your body is so important. That's why issues like abortion and sex and sexuality and marriage really matter. God loves his creation. And he entered into it. He entered into the world. He got enmeshed in our brokenness because he intends to redeem and restore from within. And this is really important because, I don't know, a lot of people, a lot of Christians have this strange idea that salvation and you know, go, going to heaven is, is about escaping from this earth, escaping from this world, and going to some ethereal, cloud-like place. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches a very physical heaven because it talks about heaven coming to earth, a new heavens and a new earth, that the creation will be restored and renewed. God loves his creation. He doesn't want to just do away with it. He wants to restore it. All things will be made new. He loves his creation, and he came into his creation so he could rescue it. Second quick thing, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. I mentioned this last time. Uh, 1 Timothy 5 talks about Jesus as the mediator, like a mediator in a, in, a, in a conflict, in a broken relationship, the mediator between God and man. A good mediator is one who's able to fairly and accurately represent each party to the other. And so Jesus, being fully God, represents God perfectly to man. And Jesus, being fully man, represents man perfectly to God. He is the perfect and only mediator between God and man. Only he is able to reconcile, to redeem us, reconcile us to God, and to restore that relationship that was broken. And third thing is that, and this might be massively important for you right now, some of you, that we have a God who identifies with us. Okay? We all face suffering. We all face temptation. We face pain, fear, death. But through Christ, God knows what it's like. He doesn't sit somewhere far off just observing us. He knows what it's like to face temptation and to suffer and to have pain and to face death. He knows. And so when we pray in those situations, you don't have to explain to God what it's like. He knows he identifies with you. He's experienced it himself at first hand. You may ask God the question, why are you allowing this to happen to me? But one thing you know for certain is not because he doesn't love you. You might not understand what you're going through, but he walks through it with you. He's gone ahead of you, and he walks through all situations with you. He can help you to come through. 
Okay, so God loves his creation. He's going to restore it. He's the perfect mediator, Jesus, between God and man. We have a God who can identify with us in our suffering. Those are all massively important implications or results of the virgin birth, of Jesus being fully God and fully man. So I just want to focus in on this one, is that it makes Jesus our representative and our substitute. He is our representative and our substitute. God comes to deal with the failings of the human race through one who lived the kind of life that we should have lived and represents us to God in his obedience and he died the death that we should have died as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sin in order to create a new humanity and to offer hope and to offer a way back to God. Let me just explain that a bit more. So, so later in Luke chapter 3, you got a description of uh, Jesus' ancestors. So the genealogy, you know the genealogy, the bit you tend to skip over when you're reading through the Bible. Um, his family line, so Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. And this goes all the way back to Adam, as in Adam and Eve, Adam, Adam in the Garden of Eden. And it, it, it says, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and Adam was the son of God. As Adam was the son of God. Now we know he's not, he wasn't the only begotten and eternal son of God, but it, it shows this, this relationship between God and Adam. There's something quite significant and special about it. It's a relationship of unity, a relationship of God as father with a purpose of knowing and loving God. And we know that Adam and the human race in general, because we were made in God's image, we were meant to represent God to creation. We were meant to represent him to the world because we're made in his image. We're meant to live a life of closeness and obedience and love with God that represented him physically in creation. And Adam was our representative. As the human race, we were represented by Adam. God tends to deal with representatives. It's a bit like when we send MPs to Westminster. It doesn't always work terribly well, but... We send an MP to Westminster to represent us, to speak for us, to raise issues and concerns that are relevant to us, to act on our behalf. And Adam was our representative, and he was a fair representative, by the way, in that he is what we are like. He is just what we are like. I'm absolutely convinced that what he did, we would also have done. Because otherwise... That situation we find ourselves in of being born separated from God because we inherit this sin from Adam, it would be utterly unfair. It would be utterly unjust. But God is not unjust. And so I'm convinced that we would have done exactly what Adam did. He was a very fair representative of us. And what Adam did was to declare independence, to declare war on God. He wanted to be his own God, not the son of God. He wanted to replace God. And we have lived justly, we've lived with the terrible outcome of that ever since. That everything that is wrong with the world, everything that's broken with the world and in us, goes back to that moment when sin first entered the world and when our representative led us in the wrong direction. I mean, you might hear me talking about sin and this kind of thing and think, well, that's not me. I'm not a sinner, I'm a good person. You know, because I'm better than him and I'm better than her. You know, we can measure ourselves against other people and make ourselves feel good. I'm a good person. I don't need rescue. I don't need salvation. I'm not a sinner. The fact is, we are all born in Adam. 
It's inescapable. We're all born in Adam. We're all born in sin. And crucially, we don't measure up to God's standard. And if you're honest with yourself, you don't even measure up to the standard you set for yourself. We don't measure up. We can't justify ourselves. We're born in Adam. Joel Virgo tells the story of an Australian friend of his who said that there was someone in his past, someone in his ancestry, who committed a crime and was sent to Australia, sent to the penal colony in Australia. That was his destiny. But of course, it wasn't just his destiny. That became the destiny of all who followed, all his descendants. Because of what he did, he led future generations into another identity, into another country. That's what happened with Adam. You might think, I'm a really nice person. I give to charity, and I help people, I'm kind to people, I volunteer, I'm, I'm a nice person, I'm good. But if you're in Adam, you're fallen. You might be the nicest person in the world. I can be nice sometimes. You might be far nicer than me. You might be the nicest person in the world. But the, your fundamental position, your fundamental situation is that you are separated from God. You're alienated from God because your representative failed as you would have done as well. Your whole identity is wrapped up in Adam. And God's son who took the human race into opposition to God. But then comes the son. The son, God himself, the eternal son of God. Coming to fix the mess that Adam made and that we perpetuate. A second Adam as Romans chapter 5 very clearly outlines. He's a second Adam, a second representative, fully human, fully divine. And even going right back to the Garden of Eden in, in Genesis 3, Genesis 3.15, sin has just come into the world, but straight away we get a glimpse of the gospel. We get a glimpse of God's rescue plan as he gives this promise to Eve that through your seed, through your offspring, through the seed of a woman, a rescuer will come. And this rescuer will crush the head of the serpent, will crush evil, but will get hurt in the process. The serpent will strike his heel. But a rescuer that will be born of a woman. And then in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Matthew, we read about this virgin girl who is told, you will have a son and you'll name him Jesus and he will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And this is the moment of convergence of all of Old Testament prophecy, of all of history, the moment when light entered the world, when the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, Jesus came. And, and Jesus, by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, Jesus didn't inherit the sins of Adam that we all do. He was fully human and yet without sin. He didn't inherit the sins of Adam. He did assume the sins of Adam, though. He assumed the sins of Adam. He willingly took on himself all the sin of the world, all the shame of the world, all the guilt of the world on the cross as our substitute in our place. Having lived the life we should have lived on our behalf as our second Adam, as our new representative, and then dying the death that we should have died so that the debt of sin could be paid forever. Cancelled, gone, done, so you can be free. You can be utterly free. You can find your way back to God. And then he rose again from the dead. He rose again to create a new humanity, a resurrection life that he calls us into. That if you are now in Christ, you are no longer in Adam. You have a sure and certain and eternal hope, a glorious and eternal future accessed through faith in Christ. That's why the virgin birth is important. That's why it matters. The virgin birth, the incarnation, the person of Jesus, it's difficult to understand. 
But if it wasn't true, if it was a myth like that bishop said, we would be utterly lost without hope and without representation in a hopeless and dying world. And so the question is, what is your response? What's your response to this? First of all, if you're a follower of Jesus, what is your response? I just want to point you to the extraordinary trusting faith of Mary in this passage. What does she say? She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Just consider what she's saying. She's saying, I trust you completely. Yes, I will become a virgin mum and betrothed to a man who will probably leave me and hate me. This could cost me my life because it will be assumed that I've committed adultery. It will at least mean a life of isolation and shame and being despised and ostracized. I don't fully know what obedience will mean, but I know it will cost me. But I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. It's extraordinary. And faith is like that. Is your faith like that? You know, as we've been standing together each week, saying the words of this creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heavens and the earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. As we stand together each week and say that, you are reminding yourself, we're reminding ourselves of who he is, the truth of who he is, and of what he's done, and who we are in him. And by believing it, you are choosing obedience. You're saying, yes, you are Lord. You're my Lord. I submit my life to you. I willingly and gladly submit myself to you. You are Lord. You're recognizing that, just like the angel said to Mary, you who are highly favored, by believing the creed, you're recognizing, I am highly favored. I am highly favored if this is true, if he really has done this, if he did bring his son into the world, if the word really did become flesh, I am highly favored. If a holy and awesome God enmeshed himself in our brokenness to save me and to take my sin and my shame and my guilt, everything I deserve, to give me a new start so that I am now in Christ and I'm no longer in Adam and Jesus stands before the Father right now interceding for me, my representative. If that is true, I trust you. I trust you completely. And I don't know what obedience fully will mean. I know it will cost me. But I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. What is the Lord asking you to do? And what is he challenging in you? Listen to him. Listen to him. His voice should speak louder than any other voice in your life. Listen to him. Do what he says. That should be our response. And what is your response if this is new for you? If you're not a follower of Jesus, what's your response? The incarnation of God in Christ, God becoming man, roots this in history. This is really important. It roots it in history. You know, the Bible's full of eyewitness accounts that say, we, we've seen him, we, we, we heard him, we, we can testify to the things he did, and actually all these other people can as well, just go and ask them. We attest to this, we touched him after his resurrection, we've heard him, we've seen him, we've touched him. And it means that the Jesus story is not just a myth or a legend, it's not just a story, it's a history It's rooted in history, real life history. And if God really has come as a man, then that makes, it's the basis for having a personal relationship with him. Because he's no longer just a remote idea or an abstract concept or a force. He is 
He's a real person. He's graspable. He's relatable, even though he's still incomprehensible. But you can know him. You can know so much about him. And just look at what he did so that that's possible. Look at the steps he took towards you to come and rescue you and enter into your world, into into creation, the infinite God taking on the weakness of human flesh and to bring an invitation to know him personally. The word, the logos, the word of God, the thing you are created by and the thing you're created for, the very meaning in life is a person a real, concrete, human person who is also God, the author of life, the author of everything, the source of meaning, beauty, and fulfillment. You know, this is what converted C.S. Lewis. You know, C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia books, among many other things, converted him from being an atheist to, to following Christ. So he was an Oxford professor, very intelligent man. He had been an atheist for years, but he noticed that there were certain stories that moved him deeply. They moved him. And even though he was an atheist and that intellectually he looked at the world as just an accidental collision of molecules where the, weak eat the, the, the strong eat the weak and you know, essentially that's meaningless. There's no meaning. It's, it's, it's pointless. That's, that's how he essentially looked at the world intellectually. But at the same time, he was aware, so aware of an intense desire within him for joy and for meaning. And that through art, through music, and through stories, he could be moved deeply and have a real, genuine, deep sense of meaning and beauty. That there was truth, that there was right and wrong, that there was justice and injustice, that there was some sort of salvation. There was something better that he was yearning for. I mean, maybe you can relate. And one evening, he went for a walk with his friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien shared the gospel with him. He explained the good news about Jesus Christ. And then he asked him a question. He said, why do you think myths and stories really move you? And Lewis said, well, I don't know. Because myths are basically lies. They're not true. So I don't know why they do. But Tolkien said, no, when you're moved by a story, it's because they're getting an underlying reality that you actually know is true. Like when you read Peter Pan and you're stirred by it, it's because really you know that in the beginning we were never meant to grow old and die. That there's something wrong with the world. It stirs something in you. It points to an underlying reality that you instinctively know is true. That there really is good and evil and there really is something wrong with the world and that we've lost something and we want to get it back. That there is a hero. That there is a rescuer. That there is something better. And he says all these myths, all these stories get an underlying reality that you can't deny, that you intuitively know, that we all intuitively know. But, Tolkien said, when it comes to Jesus and the Jesus story, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, this is not just another story that points to the underlying reality. It is the underlying reality. It is the story beneath all the other stories. It's the one that all the other stories point to. The day that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us is when the myth became a fact. And he said, when you get hold of Jesus, when you meet him, then you find all the meaning and the beauty and the joy that you've been searching for and longing for and yearning for. The things that all those other stories stirred up in you. And it was like a light went on in Lewis's head. And a week later, he was writing to a friend telling him that he was now a Christian. He's now a follower of Jesus. Jesus is the myth that is actually true. It's actually true. It's historical. And it's in him and it's only in him that you find the reason for living, 
the meaning in life, beauty, fulfillment, and salvation. Wonderful, glorious salvation. And you know, every human, I believe, every human being knows deep down their need of salvation. That there's something wrong that, try as we might, we can't fix. We can't do anything about it. And so he extends an invitation for you to know him personally and to know his salvation. And so my question for you is, what is your response? If Jesus is here today and he's calling your name and he's extending his hand to you, what are you going to do? Are you going to step up? Are you going to take his hand? Are you going to listen and respond to his name? What is your response to him today?